Hey, Salt City. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are starting a, a new series in what's called the Pastoral Epistles. So first in 2 Timothy and Titus. If you would start flipping there with me, we, we love the Bible. We want to look at the Bible as we teach. If you're new to the Bible, it's, it's towards the back of the Bible. So you can even start at Revelation and kind of flip back. You should find it quickly. Or uh, there's like a table of contents in the front of the Bible if you've got that physical copy. But if you'd flip there with me, that would be great. So let me start by just reading the first couple of verses. 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, in Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So you should immediately notice how this book is really different from the book of Exodus that we've just been covering for a number of weeks. So Exodus is in the Old Testament and it was a part of a different covenant that we weren't under. And so that affects how we apply it. Whereas 1 Timothy was written to a New Testament church about how the church should function. And what you'll notice from Exodus, it was this narrative and so through that narrative, we were trying to pay attention to these poetic themes and figure out how they apply to our life. First Timothy is, is really different. It's this very earthy, kind of practical, straightforward instruction about how the church should operate. And so in these pastoral epistles, he's going to tackle these topics about doctrine, about church leadership, how the church should function and give us really practical instruction about those things. So First uh, Timothy was written, we just saw, by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote it to Timothy, his friend and partner in ministry. Now, Paul is this bold, at times abrasive, uh, and at times confusing <laughs> um, apostle who just who just led, and he just went after it, right? And Timothy, what we know from some observations from the pastoral epistles is he was actually really different. He was young. Uh, he was very likely timid and insecure. What you see repeatedly in the pastoral epistles is Paul encouraging him to be bold and to take leadership. He was, in a lot of ways, a reluctant leader, but even with that being the case of his temperament, Paul here is entrusting him with leadership over the churches at Ephesus. And the reason for that is because temperament is not the most important thing about the work of God. The power of God in faith in that power is the most important thing when trying to make an influence for the kingdom of God. So that's not a main point, but that's just a little side note. If you have felt disqualified from the work of God because you're a little bit more shy, you're a little bit more timid, maybe people don't notice you in the room, I want you to be encouraged by Timothy. As he was given this massive role in leadership and by the power of God and the encouragement of his friend, he uh, had an incredible impact on the early church. Let's look at verse three. Paul in verse three is going to give us a reason for this letter that he's writing to Timothy. He's gonna explain what he's asking Timothy to do. Look at verse three. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus 
so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Paul says here that he's urging Timothy to do something, which that word means exactly what it sounds like. It's this urgent pleading to Timothy to stay there in Ephesus and to lead the church. Now, what is Paul so urgently telling Timothy to do? Why does he so urgently need him to stay? Well, he says it there at the end of verse 3. He wants him to stay in Ephesus because he wants Timothy to refute false doctrine. So doctrine, if you were to look it up, it it would just say like doctrine is a set of beliefs. What I would want to add to that is it's a set of beliefs that influence behavior. And so Paul is saying that within the church, teaching correct doctrine is of urgent importance to the church. And of equal importance is refuting false doctrine, exposing what isn't true and the behavior it induces is incredibly important for the church. And I want to state that clearly. That might sound technical, but I want to state that clearly because it's actually controversial. It's controversial because there can be this idea within the church that holding to true doctrine is contrary to love. Have you heard something along this line of reasoning? Like we shouldn't get too caught up in sort of these theological debates. Really what matters is love. And if you're getting caught up in what's true, then you're likely not doing a good job of loving people. And the argument goes, I've even heard it something along the lines of like Jesus didn't really care about doctrine. Jesus just loved people. And so we need to love people the way that Jesus loved people. And one of the ways that we can do that is by letting go a little bit on our stance of truth so that we can love people well. The problem with that is, is that reasoning is a direct contradiction to what Paul is arguing here. Look at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So he says the aim of his charge is love. That's what he's after. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to love the church well. So when he says the aim of the charge, what does he mean? Well, in context, the charge that he's giving Timothy is to refute false doctrine and to teach true doctrine. So if you were to replace that there in the sentence, it would read, teach true doctrine out of a heart of love. So the way that you love people is not by letting go of what's true to just love, but you love people actually by holding tightly to what's true because what we believe affects how we live. If you want to live the good life that Jesus designed for us to live, you have to understand who God is and what it means to have relationship with him. Our beliefs are not just sort of abstract things that don't matter for our lives, but they're deeply ingrained in who we are and they're relevant to how we live. And so he charges Timothy, teach what's true, refute what's false. And so we're, we're about to, in a minute, we're going to look at, okay, What are some of the false doctrines that are swirling around right now in culture and uh, kind of related to some of the doctrines that were happening at this point in history when Paul wrote this letter? And then we'll look at what true doctrine is. But first, I want to take a step back, okay, and I want to take a little, little bit of a macro perspective 
on our society's view of truth. Because I think this is actually really important for us to understand, to know to how to know how to navigate in the world. So I want to look at kind of a macro view of how society has understood truth, and then I want to get down into the weeds, the nitty-gritty nitty of how that truth is applied in our lives. So the dominant school of thought in modernity relating to truth has been what's called relativism. My guess is most of you have heard of this, right? It's this idea that truth is not absolute, it's relative. So I have my truth and you have your truth and we all can just coexist as long as we don't break the one rule, which is telling someone else what their truth needs to be. So as long as you can have your truth and I can have my truth, we'll all be fine and we'll be able to be unified. It's kind of this laissez-faire attitude about truth. It's not really at the end of the day that important. And that was the dominant thinking for a long time. Even when I was coming up through college, and I know I'm I know I'm getting a little older, but I'm not that old. When I was in college, this was the predominant thing that we were having. When I was having conversations with my roommates, people in, uh, in my classes about following Jesus, this was the thing I would hear. Well, that's great for you. Like, I support you in that. That's fine. But that's just, that's not what I believe. And so we were trying to figure out how to come to this shared understanding of truth. That has been the dominant form of thinking for a long time, but it's actually changed. I don't know the exact timeline, uh, and scholars are still kind of trying to figure it out, but there's, it, there's increasing agreement that that philosophy of relativism is no longer the dominant thinking in culture. And I think it's because all of us, Christian or not, have seen the bankruptcy of, of relativism. Here's what all of us know, if we're honest is there's things that are just right and things that are wrong. It's not just that it's our intuition or our opinion or our preference about how the world works. We have these moral instincts buried deep within our conscience and our souls that tell us that things are just objectively wrong. And we've seen some of the bankruptcy of pretending like that isn't true and like we can just live however we want. And there's been a little bit of a backlash to that where society has really gone the opposite direction and is no longer saying you, you can just believe whatever you want, but is actually holding strongly to truth and is saying this is the one truth and not only do I, do I need to believe it, but all of you need to believe it. And hence we've seen the rise of yard signs, right? That's where this is coming from. So it used to be just churches that needed doctrine statements, now every household needs one. That's a product of our culture. And, and you can see it in organizations and businesses. It's not actually enough to have a business strategy, but you need a social, a social and political stance. That's what we've seen happen in our culture. And, and by the way, we as Christians largely agree with this movement. So we've been saying forever that there's real truth, it's absolute, and it's not enough for me to just live that way, but all of us need to put ourselves under that truth. And so when you talk with your coworkers and your friends, maybe people in your, your classes, people in your family, this is an area of agreement that we have with them, which is there are things that are true that are worth believing and that we actually need to come to an agreement on that truth to be able to live moral lives. 
The difficulty with that in culture, though, is even though there's this commitment to truth, this commitment to doctrine, there's no agreement on what the source of truth is. And so what, what ends up happening is people simply dig their heels in on their previously held political and social ideologies, aka they polarize. And as they polarize, they become almost militant in what they believe, even though there's very little foundation for those beliefs. It's, it's reinforced through their new sources and through their friendships and the people they relate to, and it's reinforced as they so strongly disagree and kind of hurl moral grenades at the people who disagree with them. And in this polarization and this distrust of people who disagree with them, there's been a rise of conspiracy theories. And as a side note, this is something that I'm actually concerned for our church with and concerned for Christians. I more and more hear Christians going down this route of kind of this speculative thinking where these sort of odd, out-of-the-box ideas about some grand conspiracy theory within our government or our culture or something like that uh, we get attached to it, and it's almost come to relate to our Christianity. When you read through the pastoral epistles, you see a lot of warnings against these sort of abstract, vain theories that aren't grounded in the law of God. We need to be careful with those, and we need to be careful about tying them to our Christianity. So, so to summarize kind of where our culture has landed, here's what we're seeing. We're seeing vain abstract myths and theories popularized. We're seeing them popularized with this harsh overconfidence, this almost angry vitriol towards anyone who doesn't believe what you believe in the sense that, um, that no other opinion is valid or should be allowed into the discussion, a harsh overconfidence. But those things that, were held, that are held in such confidence are held with no knowledge of the truth. That would be my summary of what's happening. Now, I want us to look at how Paul describes false teaching in 1 Timothy 4 and in verse 6. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Stewardship there means godly living. So these myths are promoting sort of abstract arguments, but not godly living. And then verse 6, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or things about which they make confident assertions. You see that there? Vain myths, harsh overconfidence, no foundation of truth. Man, this scripture that we have, guys, written 2,000 years ago, so relevant to our daily lives. It's alive, it's living, it's breathing, it's not abstract, it's worth giving your life towards. It speaks into your daily existence. Paul here is talking about a lot of the false teaching that we continue to see today. And so as we get into what some of this false teaching is, modernly, I, I just want to warn you that there can be this temptation when we talk about some of these things to think about those people. You know what I mean? 
Man, I really hope that person is hearing this message. No one who is a conspiracy theorist, or very few people who are conspiracy theorists, know they're conspiracy theorists. It seems logical and rational to them. And there can be this temptation to think, man, I would never believe false teaching. Or I would know when false teaching is being taught. But this is what I got to tell you. Like, false teachers are not telling you that they're false teachers. They don't wear a badge. It says, hi, my name is so-and-so. I am a false teacher. It can be difficult to kind of understand when it's happening. So I've heard about uh, this reality that can happen to pilots sometimes. If they're flying through, uh, like, bad weather or if they're flying in the dark, they can encounter something called spatial disorientation which is where you don't know, you like lose track of the horizon and you don't know what's up and what's down. I don't actually know if this can happen in like commercial airliners for all of our sakes, we're just gonna say it can't. But in small planes that most of us don't ride in, this, uh, this can happen. And you can lose track completely of where you are. And this thing that is an incredibly dangerous scenario where you can be, think you're flying up and actually be flying down, the thing that makes it worse is confidence that you're flying the appropriate direction because you continue to fly down until there's a collision or something like that, right? So you can become morally disoriented, including as a Christian, and I, I see it happening where people that think that they're pursuing into the depths of Christ are actually in the process of walking away from him in, because of some of these false teachings. And like I said, I think that the essence of the false teaching that Paul is talking about here is this idea of like, I know the problem, I'm seeing this clearly, and the problem is those people over there. Guys, I've, I've fallen into this. Like, okay, look at, look at verse seven again, making confident assertions without knowledge. How prevalent is that right now? That's the internet, guys. It's just the whole internet. Confidently asserting things without this like origin of truth, right? And I've, I've fallen into that. I remember when we had kind of the chaos over the last couple years, where we, as a church, were walking through some of the things going on in COVID, when we were walking through the killing of George Floyd and all of the, the political upheaval and social upheaval that resulted, I, I felt afraid because it was something that I didn't totally understand that I was trying to lead through. And I didn't totally notice it at the time, but I think in reflecting back, I've gained some clarity on this. There was this instinct in me to try to present as an expert. I'm like trying to study up on medical advice and give it to the people in my life. I am not an expert in that area, but I was afraid of appearing like I didn't know what I was talking about. And so there was this sense that I was trying to confidently assert my leadership and my understanding without a baseline of knowledge. And there was this temptation to think that other people were the problem. I remember like having arguments with people in my head, but then actually talking to them and going, yeah, that's a valid perspective. 
and realizing in my head it was a lot easier to argue with them than in person, right? Like, I fell into this. All of us are capable of falling into these things, okay? Now, with that said, I just want to share what I, what I think, and, and our elders talked about this some this week too, what I think is my greatest concern for us as far as false teaching goes in the life of Salt City Church right now. My greatest concern is the entangling of socio-political views with our Christianity. It's letting our politics inform our understanding of the Bible instead of the other way around. Letting the Bible inform our politics. And, and there's this tendency to stand firmly on party lines right now and to slap some Bible on it, some vaguely Christian ideas, and to call it a Christian position. But this is what I want to make clear. Neither political party is upholding the law of God fully. Neither political party is upholding the law of God fully. So if you are siding along party lines, you are believing a false gospel. So right after Paul talks about false teaching, in verse 9 he'll start to talk about the law. Because the law of God is like LASIK surgery for your morality. You get the surgery of the law and all of a sudden what once was fuzzy and you couldn't totally see, now you can start to see clearly. It starts to cut through some of the chaos that's going on in culture. And so he brings up the law of God. And I just want to encourage you as you navigate sociopolitical ideology and conversations, let your main diet be the law of God. And if you really get to know the word of God, there's going to be so many things in your life that become clear. Will every single thing become clear? Of course not. But more things than you would expect, I think, will become clear for you. Let me just ask you, what's your daily consumption ratio between the word of God and news outlets? What's your consumption look like between the word of God and sort of these political debates and discussions that you're reading about online or engaging with personally? I just want to encourage you to let the law of God, the word of God, be your main diet. And I think that that's what Paul is arguing here, that if we use the law rightly, we'll begin to understand what is true and false. So I just want to read this section to you. Look at verse 9. What he's about to do here is he's, he's going to give, he's going to explain that there's people who are using the law improperly and they're denying things that are clearly laid out in the law. And because of that, they are ungodly or they're engaged in sin. And then he's going to give a list of things that are sinful. Okay, so verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Did you notice there? He, he said that false living, living in sin, and he just gave a sin list, is contrary to sound doctrine. Sound doctrine relates to how you live, and that's part of the reason why it's so important. And so I, I want to take a minute here, and I just want to apply these things that he just listed from the law of God to things currently going on in the news and in culture. 
Now, let me just warn you on the front end. We're about to wade into some dicey stuff, okay? We're going to go there a little bit. These are not, I'm, I'm doing my best to not give you my opinions. You're not going to know sort of my political or social standing after this. I just want to apply the law that he just mentioned to these current topics. And my goal is from verse 5 to do it out of love, okay? To love our church well by saying what's true, what's not. All right, so here we go. First thing I want to talk about, the almost religious-like zeal of the support for former President Donald Trump in the the January 6th riot on Capitol Hill. So if you look at verse 9, you'll see the word unholy and you'll see the word profane. If you look at verse 10, you'll see sexually immoral and you'll see liars and perjurers. All right, so looking first at verse 9, unholy and profane. The, the nearly constant inflammatory and insulting remarks towards other image bearers from former President Trump is unholy and it's profane. Sexually immoral. It's well documented that he throughout his life has engaged in sexual immorality and it's well documented from victims that he engaged in sexual misconduct with a number of people. Liars and perjurers. So recently, uh, there was this testimony from Arizona Speaker of the House, Rusty Bowers, talking about the January 6th riot on Capitol Hill. And before that testimony, former President Trump uh, said that he had had a conversation with Mr. Bowers where uh, Bowers had said that the election was falsified in Arizona and that former President Trump had actually won in Arizona. But Rusty Bowers, who is a Donald Trump supporter, voted for him, testified under oath that that was not true, that there was no such thing that happened, and in fact that uh, former President Trump and Rudy Giuliani were behind the scenes trying to influence him to overturn the election results and said that they had evidence for that reality that they never produced. Okay, so here's, here's what I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you who, who you should vote for or su- support politically. But what I am saying is we as Christians need to be able to say, former President Trump has engaged in sexual immorality and is a liar and has lied about aspects of the election that has caused a great deal of pain for really millions of people throughout the United States. We should be able to say that as Christians. Okay, next thing. Pride Month. Look at verse 10. Men who practice homosexuality. I just wanted to show you the Greek word for this. I think we should have it on the screens. The Greek word for homosexuality here is arson. Uh, Well, excuse me, the, the, the root word of that, the first part of it that you see, arson, means male or man. And then koitos means, which is the second part of the word, means bed or to lie with. So it means man lying with another man. You can cross-reference that to Leviticus 18.22, where it means that exact same thing. So it's very clear what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about homosexual sex. And he's listing it in this sin list. So Pride Month is celebrating something that is unholy. Now, homophobia is also unholy. 
and not something we should engage in as Christians, but if you embrace homosexuality as a legitimate lifestyle of a Christian, you're embracing a false gospel. Now, here's what I want you to know. Let me just pause for a second. If you're an ardent Donald Trump supporter, or if you're same-sex attracted, we love you, and we love that you're here, and you are welcome here. All right, right after men who practice homosexuality, you'll see enslavers. People who are enslaved. Okay, that's obvious what the meaning of that is. Here's part of our history as a country is we've, we have a history of people who claim the name of Jesus who also owned slaves. Now, a lot of those people were not legitimate Christians, but some of them maybe knew Jesus and were completely blind to this reality. But those two things are absolutely antithetical. And we as Christians hate the practice of slavery in all of its forms and any social ramifications that may still exist today as a result of our history with slavery, we hate those as well. We understand that because of the depravity of human beings, that human beings are all capable of any amount of sin because of the depravity of human beings, that the racism that existed in former times is still present in the human heart today. And we oppose that racism and we do everything we can to push back on its ramifications on image bearers made in the dignity and likeness of God who deserve equality. We care about that and how people are treated. Now, if you have prejudice or racism in your heart, we love you and we're glad you're here. Jesus loves you, pursues relationship with you. Roe versus Wade. End of verse nine says murders. The definition of murder means the unlawful killing of another human being. We understand that babies are designed in their mother's womb, that they were knit together in their mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And so although there's been debate about whether that is killing under the law of the land, there is no debate about what it is under the law of God. That those human beings are made in the image of God and deserve the dignity of life. And so we celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And we hope that it continues to eradicate abortions across our country. While, of course, with that, we are thoroughly pro-life, womb to tomb, all aspects of life. We are thoroughly pro-life, but that doesn't mean that we shy away from the reality that we are pro-life in this sense as Christians. And because of that, we vehemently disagree with the stance of President Biden on abortion. And we believe what's happened around this topic is there's been a moral disorientation surrounding abortion, where it's viewed, uh, where the last couple of days have been viewed by some as really sad days because it's viewed as taking away the rights of women. But what we understand is this is gaining the rights for unborn women across this country. Now, if you've had an abortion, if you support abortion, we love you. We're glad you're here. We want you to follow Jesus. We want to support you in any way that we can. Now, here's why I wanted to say this, okay? I just want to, what response does this produce in your heart as you're hearing some of these things? For you, were some of these things creating this like, ugh, I actually really disagree. Or, I don't know if we can say that. 
I don't know if we should be able to say that as Christians. I just want to uh, introduce the idea that maybe that is a result of embracing a false gospel. These things that we're talking about here are clearly shown in the law of God that Paul wrote here in 1 Timothy. There's not a lack of clarity on them. But there can be times that our politics start to overtake our understanding of the law and create that response in us. And I just want us to become aware of that reality. And here's why it's so tempting to embrace false gospels for all of us, myself included, is because they make us feel justified. Because we can point at another group that's different from us and we can say, I'm righteous because of my disagreement with that group. I'm justified in condemning these people that are wrong and that's a powerful feeling. But at the heart of this false teaching is the temptation to use the law to condemn other people but to justify yourself. And that's actually how you get an identity in our society is by comparing your identity with someone else's identity. And if you don't fall in line to whatever political or sociological ideology you fall into, you get ostracized, you get condemned as a heretic. But here's what the true gospel offers you the opportunity to do, to admit that not only are some other people wrong, but that you are wrong and that you have access to the grace of God. The true gospel, look at verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. False gospels have an inflated view of self. It's those people over there. But the true gospel with Paul is saying, I am the worst of sinners. The problem with the world is me. I've engaged in all of this law breaking. I mean, for me, even, even murder, Jesus told us that if you're even angry with someone, it's like you've committed murder in your heart. Therefore, I have committed murder. I am guilty of the law breaking that we just talked about. And so along with Paul, we can just say, hey, this is talking about me. I'm not on the judgment seat looking down at other people, but I'm underneath of it saying, yeah, I am guilty as charged before God. And Paul is able to be honest about that. But notice what changes for him? Verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So Paul's talking about how he used to be an opponent of Christianity, but then something happened. But I received mercy. Here's what Paul realized once he received mercy, once he had a revelation of Jesus Christ, is that he wasn't sitting, judging other people, but he was underneath of it, deserving the justice of God, but that Jesus had held back his hand, that he was offering Paul mercy, that Jesus, although not guilty of breaking the law, had stood in Paul's place and had offered Paul a way out, and it radically changed his perspective on the world, and he was able to look at the law and say, I've committed those sins, I'm as bad as anybody else, and we can do the same. The right way to be made right is actually to be made wrong, to admit that you're wrong. The only way to stop being a part of the problem is to admit that you are a part of the problem. And as you do that, you have access to mercy. With other ideologies, if you screw up, you're exiled from the community. With Jesus, if you screw up, you're invited in. Jesus pursues the broken. 
He pursues the lawbreakers. And you're not, you're not canceled from his community when you do something wrong. In fact, your sin is your access point to that community. If you're just willing to admit it and say, yeah, that's true of me. I'm the worst of sinners. Jesus looks at that and he pursues sinners in mercy. That's what he came to do. He came to earth because he loved sinners. And if you doubt that, if you doubt that you could be invited into the kingdom of God, Paul is our example of that. Guys, he was leading a church where there was widows of the people that he killed in his church. Can you imagine the shame associated with seeing those widows at church? But look at how he responds to his realization of his own sin. Verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What is Paul doing here? He's not advancing the argument that he made. What's he up to? He's worshiping. When Paul looked at his sin, his response was worship because he was so confident in the mercy of Jesus Christ that it induced worship in his soul because he understood that those who had sinned much were forgiven much. What is your response to your sin? Because in Christ, it can be worship. It can be praise because you can look at your sin and in confidence in the faithfulness of Jesus, say, this is not held against me. I will not be eradicated from his kingdom. I will not be pushed out from Jesus' gospel, but I'll be welcomed in. Because I've sinned much, I've been forgiven much. And so don't let other people's sin lead you towards judgment and self-righteousness. Learn to let your sin lead you to humility and then ultimately to praise. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that all of us who stand under your law guilty, that you've offered a way out. And that you didn't stay distant and just condemn us, but you, you entered into humanity to save sinners. And that's us, God. So we as a church just want to come to you and we just ask you, would you save us? Would you protect us from believing false doctrine? Would you bring us into the true reality of your kingdom? Would you help us to hold on to what's true? And within that, hold on to the true reality that we don't deserve salvation. We're not better than anyone else. But in you, we can be free. We look to you, God, and ask for mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.